It's great to see each of you this morning. If you have a Bible, I ask you to open up this morning to the book of Isaiah this morning. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, reading from verse 1 through 7 this morning, the Word of God reads, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your glorious word, and we thank you for this wonderful passage this morning. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine your word to us, give us understanding. Father, we pray that you would take that understanding in us, that you grant to us, and you would empower it by your Spirit to have a proper response to it, one that is pleasing to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you walked in this morning and saw the slide on the screen and went, is it December already? <laughs> like, like, what happened? It's, it's December. And not only is it December, but it's December of 2023. <laughs> now, for those of you that are younger in here, um, you might not understand this, but for those of us that are older, it seems like time goes by faster and faster as we age. I remember as, as a young child, Christmas would come, and then it would feel like forever until the next Christmas came. It like took forever to get there. But now I'm like, wow, it's here. It's come so quickly. It is upon us. And yet, the Christmas season for Christians should be one of the most amazing times of the year. A time to reflect on the birth of our Savior. 
And beginning in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, running all the way through the book of Malachi, God unfolds the drama of redemption and the true essence of Christmas. And throughout the pages of the Old Testament, everything points to God's Messiah, the Christ of Christmas. This morning, along with the next three Sundays, we're going to break from our study in Hebrews. So if you had that dialed in this morning and ready to turn there. Instead, we're going to be looking at passages from Isaiah as we reflect on the birth of our Savior. As we go through these passages of Isaiah, we'll see that Jesus was born to reign. We'll see that he was born to redeem he was born to suffer, and he was born to bring good news. This morning, we're going to reflect on the first one, born to reign. And so before we begin and dive into this book of Isaiah and this passage this morning, laying some groundwork as some, some background is helpful for us about the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah's ministry ranged from roughly around 740 B.C., to 680 BC. The book of Isaiah was recorded roughly 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah ministered during the kingly reigns of Uzziah, of Jotham, of Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He was ministering in Judah at the same time that the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. Isaiah has been referred to as the Shakespeare of the prophets. He has been referred to as the Paul of the Old Testament. You know, a key word that is included in Isaiah's writing is the word salvation. It appears 26 times in the book of Isaiah. All the other prophets, inclusive of one another, only mention salvation seven times. But Isaiah mentions salvation 26 times. And speaking of salvation, as you are there in Isaiah, flip back to the opening chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 in verse 18. We read Isaiah 1 verse 18. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What a way to open up his writings. To understand right off the bat about salvation now flip a bunch of passages to the right, uh, pages to the right to chapter 45. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Isaiah 45, verse 22, we read, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Turn a little bit further to the right, Isaiah 55. Opening verses of Isaiah 55. In verses 1 and 2, we read, 
come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. This concept of salvation is a theme that is repeated throughout Isaiah's writing. And there's an invitation to receive salvation. And so as we get into the context of what's going on, there is judgment of God that is going on. And in the midst of that judgment, there is a remnant of God that he reaches out to, to draw them to salvation as he points to the one who is to come, who is to bring salvation. You know, this book of Isaiah, it's quoted over 50 times in the New Testament. In John chapter 12, verse 41, John says this. He said, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and he spoke of him. This is John speaking of Isaiah. So by the time that Isaiah is, is writing this, the, the Jewish people had already split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Isaiah is prophesying from Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. And it would be helpful to understand the full context of what is happening during the time when he's writing this. The year was approximately 725 B.C. And the northern kingdom was facing severe discipline from God. They had rebelled and they had turned away from God. And they were living morally and spiritually a bankrupt life. And thus God uses the Assyrian Empire that was growing and expanding to bring harsh discipline to the northern kingdom. Tiglath-Pileser III had built Assyria into a great power. And now Shalmaneser V was ready to attack Israel. And it was in 722 B.C. that Israel fell to Assyria in a humiliating defeat. The once proud nation was brought to their knees in shame, in humiliation, and in judgment. And this is where we begin in the opening lines of chapter 9. So if you are still all the way to the right, head back to Isaiah 9. And in these opening five verses in Isaiah 9, we see God's faithfulness. We see his goodness to his remnant on display. It was in the midst of their hopelessness. It was in the midst of their despair that they receive a word from God. And it is a most encouraging word. God promises to do four things on behalf of his people. He promises in these verses to take his people from gloom to glory. He promises his people to take them from darkness to light. He promises his people to take them from anguish to joy. He promises his people to take them from oppression to liberation. And so we're going to review those promises quickly and we'll return to them later. So as we go quickly, don't say, oh, that's it. We'll come back. But let's walk through them together. 
So in this opening first verse of Isaiah 9, we see that God takes his people from gloom to glory. So looking at your Bibles at Isaiah 9, verse 1, we read, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, this chapter starts off with the word but. So to get a little bit of context to what he's speaking of, let's back up just a little bit to the previous couple of verses. So in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, we read, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And turn their faces upward, and they will look to the, to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Well, here is the setting of what's about to take place in chapter 9. In chapter 9, he begins with but. But there will be no gloom, he says, for her who was in anguish in the former time. He says he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, again, understand what was going on in context. We, we pick up in 2 Kings chapter 15, 20, uh, verse 29, exactly what was happening. In 2 Kings 15, 29, read, In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath, Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured, and he lists all of these different areas, which, quite frankly, I can't even pronounce. But included in those areas are Galilee, are all the land of Naphtali, and it says that he carried the people captive to Assyria. That's the context of what's going on. But he also says that these same areas of the far northern section of Israel that experience such great gloom that God promises to make glorious. I want you to keep that in mind. We'll come back to that in a bit. The second promise that God makes to them is to take his people from darkness to light. Pick up in verse 2. Isaiah 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. These people who were walking in darkness were morally corrupt. They were spiritually bankrupt, and they physically had become captives to the Assyrians. It is these people who God graciously causes to see a great light. It is his action that does it. It is his purposes, his plan, that he would cause them to see a great light. And though they were in deep darkness, God has caused light to shine on them. Now again, not letting anything out of the bag yet. We're just walking through what is being written thus far. But keep that in mind. The third thing that God promises is to take his people from anguish to joy. 
Again, in that opening verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 9, we read that there will be no gloom for who, her who was in anguish. And then in verse 3, we read, you, speaking of God, have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. I mean, these are people that came from absolute anguish. What would look like the end of God's remnant, God promises them joy. Joy. He promises to multiply the remnant. Not only would they no longer be in anguish, but their anguish would be changed to abundant joy. He uses some illustrations here like joy of a farmer who, who reaps a full harvest or joy of a soldier who reaps the spoil after victory. It's speaking of a full joy, a complete joy that these people will experience. Keep that in mind. Once again, we'll return to this in a bit. The fourth thing God promises is to take his people from oppression to liberation. If you look at your Bibles in verses 4 and 5, Read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle to molt, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, you need to recall what is going on. The people had become captives to the Assyrians. They were greatly oppressed. And yet God promises to completely liberate them, which means they will be completely free from their enemy. Not only that, but their enemy will be completely conquered as well. He uses this illustration here and says that God promises to do this in a similar fashion to the day of Midian. This is referring, if you would remember, to a time of Gideon. And so in Judges chapter 7, verse 12, we read a little about this. We read about the enemy, the Midianites and the Amalekites. And we learn of the number of how many there were. And in Judges chapter 7, verse 12, we read, And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. What does that mean? There's a lot of them. Like you can't number them. And it says, and their camels were without number. They were as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. This is the enemy's encampment. Lots and lots and lots of people in their army, so much that an innumerable number of people are encamped against God's people. And so Gideon begins with 32,000 men, which typically sounds pretty, pretty good, unless it's against an innumerable amount of people. Then 32,000 is not that many. But do you recall what God does? Does he send Gideon with 32,000? No, he does not. 
God whittles down that 32,000 to a 300. What would appear to be a measly 300 people, which means defeating the enemy was very bleak. And God's strategy for the defeat was very unique. He was to have Gideon and his men pull off a bluff. And so we pick that up in Judges chapter 7, verses 20 through 22. We read, then the three companies, this is Gideon's 300, blew the trumpets and broke the jars, and they held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Okay, so they're all up around, there's only 300 of them. But this bluff is to make it look like there's more to appear mighty, and it is God's plan. And it is God who is going to fight on their behalf. And listen to what God does as they do this. We read in verse 21 of Judges 7, Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. How does that happen? God. God was their defender. It is God who worked mightily on their behalf. And it was working through Gideon as the leader then to give them victory. Isaiah is speaking here and saying there is a liberator to come who is greater than Gideon. That is no comparison to Gideon. And so the question before us as we go through these promises that God makes in the opening of Isaiah 9 is how was God planning to fulfill these promises? I mean, even think of the people then who were in anguish and they get this word of encouragement how is God going to do this? How is he going to take these people from gloom to glory, from darkness to light, from anguish to joy, from oppression to liberation? Well, we find that in verses 6 and 7. Isaiah reminds the people of a promise that God made years before the kingdom split. A covenant promise to David. One that we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. We read, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Throughout Isaiah's writing, we see many prophecies about this offspring that is spoken about. The king that is in the line of David who would establish an eternal reign. These prophecies begin in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, about this offspring. That he would be born in the most peculiar, peculiar, wow, say that three times fast or even once. I can't get it once. In the most odd way. Ditch it. Many of you know this one. It's a very commonly quoted Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, 
the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. How many times do you think they've seen a virgin give birth? Never. That's a good answer. Never. So already this should get their attention. There is something supernatural being spoken of here about this offspring. But perhaps one of the most detailed prophecies that we have in Isaiah about this offspring's eternal reign is recorded in our passage this morning in verses 6 and 7. That all of God's promises that He would take His people from gloom to glory, darkness to light, anguish to joy, oppression to liberation, rest in God's plan concerning this offspring. And as already mentioned, He is no ordinary offspring. Isaiah prophetically announces a royal birth. Look with me at verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9. For to us... A child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah makes it very clear in verse 7 that this offspring will have an eternal reign, which means there will be no end. Now, there are four main passages through the book of Isaiah that speak of this future Davidic ruler. This is the first one we see here in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. If you would turn over just a couple pages to Isaiah 11, you'll see another one. Isaiah chapter 11. It's actually the first 10 verses. I'm only going to read the first five. Isaiah chapter 11, the opening five verses we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is a second passage now that is pointing to this future Davidic ruler, the one who is to come. In Isaiah chapter 16, in verse 5, you want to flip there as we run through these. Isaiah 16, 5, we read, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. And lastly, a short one in Isaiah 32, verse 1. He writes in Isaiah 32, verse 1, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. So speaking to this future Davidic ruler, who will have a reign that is eternal, one that will never end. 
Jeremiah also speaks about this future king. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now, if we were in the context of the original audience, we don't have all the details that we have today. But this is what they know. And this is the hope that they are being given. That there is one who will come and reign. And his reign will be eternal. And he will be for them and not against them. And so, what do we know thus far about this eternal king from what we see in this passage? Back to Isaiah 9, 6. We read, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. First thing that we know from this passage is that this offspring, the one who is to be the eternal king, is both human and divine. He is born in human flesh, yet he is a son given from heaven. Again, he is no ordinary offspring. We also know that this child is a king. We read the government shall be upon his shoulder, meaning that he is sovereign Lord. We read that he will reign eternally. There'll be no end in time or space to his rule. His rule is universal. It is unending. It is unparalleled. The government will be upon his shoulder like no other. Let me ask you, who is Isaiah writing about? Some of you are shy with that answer. There you go. We are not ashamed of that answer. We read in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 32, that the angel Gabriel says to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This was foretold all through the Old Testament. Isaiah written 700 years before the coming of Christ. All of the Old Testament pointing to the coming Messiah. It is about Jesus who will reign forever as king. Jesus is the God-man who was born to reign. It has been rightly said that the incarnation was a true and genuine wedding of perfect deity and sinless humanity. Speaking about him being an ordinary offspring, 
For those of you that are having fighting your mind and staying engaged, this one's thrown out to you to try to engage your mind a little bit. I like what Pastor R.G. Lee said here. He makes an interesting point. You ready? He said this. He said, quote, Jesus is the only one born with no earthly father but an earthly mother. He had no heavenly mother but a heavenly father. He was older than his mother and yet as old as his father. You back? Not meant to be a riddle or to get you sidetracked. But the point is that this child spoken about in Isaiah 9-6 is anything but ordinary. This child born is not someone that we could just take as common, that we could pick one out of many. He is a one and only, and we have to get that right. There are no others like him. Remember those first two promises that we went through briefly in verses 1 and 2? That he would take his people from gloom to glory. That he would take them from darkness to light. Look back at verse 1 again. And in verse 1, you'll see the areas of Zebulun, of Naphtali, and the area of Galilee that are spoken of specifically. And you might recall after 40 days and 40 nights of being tested by the, by the devil in the wilderness, Jesus, we read in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, we read what Jesus does. So this is following the temptation. In Matthew chapter 4, those of you that like to look at your Bible and follow along, I'll give you a minute if you want to flip to Matthew. Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. We read, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was written by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Verse 15, quoting Isaiah. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And we read in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is no doubt that the one who was spoken of in Isaiah, who is to come and to reign for all eternity, is our Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask, how would God fulfill his promise to take his people from gloom to glory? Well, it begins with the birth of his son, Jesus and how would God fulfill his promise to take his people from darkness to light? It begins with the birth of his son, Jesus. Galatians 4.4, 4, we read, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. 
Now, speaking of light, do you know how Jesus referred to himself? In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah spoke of his coming. Detailed every part of it. And if we see what he wrote in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, that the people who walked in darkness, they have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. What is he looking forward to? Who is he speaking of? Where is this light coming from? It's Jesus. Thank you for that. Good answer. It's from Jesus, the light of the world. How could God take his people from anguish to joy? It begins with the birth of his son, Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, Beginning in verse 10, though many of you probably know the whole passage because I think Linus made it famous. In Luke 2, starting in verse 10, we read, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord, the King of glory. He is the one that brings great joy. And how could he take a people from oppression to, to liberation? How does God do that? It begins with the birth of his son, Jesus. It is King Jesus who has liberated us from our greatest of enemies of sin and Satan. It is King Jesus who has conquered them on our behalf. You know, it's interesting that from Genesis to Revelation, there are more than 250 names or titles for our Lord. And yet, Isaiah compiles four of them together in rapid succession, unlike anywhere else in Scripture. I mean, think about the context in which he is writing. Think about the word that is going out to take these people from gloom to glory. To take these people from darkness to light, from anguish to joy, from oppression to liberation. I mean, it's no wonder his, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. Have you ever thought about these names that he shall be called? Wonderful Counselor. You know, it's interesting, this word wonderful, it's never used in any of the scripture of what man has done or who man is. It is only spoken of who God is and what God does that is wonderful. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 29, 
Isaiah writes, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel, and he is excellent in wisdom. Jesus is the wisdom of God. We read in 1 Corinthians, the opening chapter, chapter 1, verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. It is through his counsel. It is through his wisdom that we have salvation. Like what the psalmist, what Asaph says in Psalm 73 in verse 24. He says, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Does that not summarize the Christian life? That our Lord is a wonderful counselor that he continues to direct us, that he is with us, that he is accessible at all times to us. He's also listed as mighty God. Isaiah 10, 21 says, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Well, this mighty God here means a a hero God or a warrior God. But speaking of Christ, it, it affirms his deity, speaking of him as mighty God. The word mighty here refers to warfare. It's battleground imagery. It's referring to King Jesus as a warrior God, that he defends us from our enemy. And isn't that good news? That if it is King Jesus who defends us, we are perfectly defended. That there are no gaps, there are no whoops but we have a perfect king. He is everlasting father. This means he is watchful over his people. He is fatherly in his love and his care for his people. He is fatherly in his goodness and his compassion. What this means is he's always there. He's never too busy. He's never preoccupied and unavailable to his people. If that is not a hallelujah, I don't know what it is. He is everlasting Father. He is provider and he is protector. And he does all of these things forever. He is everlasting Father. His goodness never ends. His faithfulness never ends. His care for his people Good job. Never ends. Never ends. And lastly, Isaiah says he shall be called Prince of Peace. And as the Prince of Peace, his people receive both the peace of God as well as a peace with God. In Romans chapter 5, in verse 1, we read, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know how that peace was purchased later on in Isaiah in chapter 53, which, Lord willing, we'll be looking at as a church together in a couple weeks. But in Isaiah 53, verse 5, we read, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds we are healed. There is no other way to be reconciled to God. In our sin, we are enemies of God. Those who are not in Christ justify themselves and say, I'm not that bad. God and I are probably pretty okay. Apart from Christ, you are in your sins. And in your sins, you are an enemy of God. There is no peace with God when you are in sin. But Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is the one that stepped in to our place to take our judgment, to close with his righteousness so that we could have peace with the Father, that there was no other way that that could happen. That we could have peace with God. We also live in a world of chaos and confusion. And those who are in Christ have access to a peace that surpasses all understanding. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 27, he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. A peace like no other. That even if we go back into the context of the type of things that the remnant was going through in Isaiah chapter 9. That even if we were to go through great suffering and great sorrow, in the midst of those trials, we could experience a peace that surpasses all understanding because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.14, speaking of Jesus, he says, For he himself is our peace. There is no other way. It is only through Christ. It's only through Christ that we're reconciled to God. It's only through Christ that we're reconciled to one another. He is the Prince of Peace. It is this Jesus. He was born to reign. And to his people, he is their wonderful counselor. He is their mighty God. He is their everlasting Father. He is their prince of peace. And beloved, you can be assured of this. Look at the end of verse 7 in Isaiah 9. Isaiah offers assurance to his listeners concerning the fulfillment of this promise. The end of verse 7, we read, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, I don't know about you, but I love that. I mean, simply say it's, it's God Almighty himself will do this. Will do this. Not a maybe, not a perhaps, not it could happen, but it's a guarantee that Jesus will reign as an eternal king. That Jesus right now is reigning as, an, as the eternal king. Why? It was guaranteed by the Father. And he accomplishes his purposes. It is this 
King Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. We read, Though he was in the form of God, speaking of Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Look, Jesus is not just a king who reigns, or, or like a king who reigns. He is the king who reigns. In Matthew 21, verse 5, Jesus says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus was the king spoken of in Isaiah 9. You know, one of the most glorious accounts of the, the Christ's exaltation as king is found in what Dave read to us earlier in Daniel 7. In Daniel chapter 7, in verses 13 and 14, we read, I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, listen, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He has been given power over all peoples. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. I mean, his kingdom will never be destroyed. Jesus' sovereignty is everlasting. You know, it has been said that the shoulders that bear the government of the universe are the shoulders that bore the cross of Calvary. I want you to think on that for a second. And since that is the case, the question I have for you is what is your response? What is your response to this king who reigns? Think about it, the baby who was born, the second person of the Trinity clothed in human flesh, that he took on our lowly humanity, and he was scandalously crucified on a Roman cross as a perfect sacrifice for sin. And he was raised from the dead, taken up to heaven, and exalted as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he now reigns as the God-man. He is flesh of his people's flesh and bone of their bone. And as such, he sits upon the throne of the universe. What is your response? 
Because the only proper response is to bow down and worship him. There is no other acceptable response. Nothing that can be put in its place other than to see the King of Kings, the one who reigns eternally, to bow down and to worship him. Father, we thank you for sending us your son. Thank you that he was born to reign, that he is our conquering king, and that his reign is eternal. Thank you that we now have no fear because our king is with us. And our king, he is for us. He is our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, our prince of peace. Father, from your word this morning, may you empower it into our lives with a proper response that we would in turn worship you, that we would worship your son as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that our lives would be lived in submission to him. Oh God, I pray for anyone here this morning who does not know Christ as Lord that it is clear from your word that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Father, may it be on this side where they still have breath, where you draw them to salvation so they can enjoy eternity with their eternal King. We pray, O oh God, that you would draw them to your Son, Jesus. It's in his glorious name that we pray. Amen. Beloved, I received this morning's benediction from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen.